You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, June 11th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. The angry bitch. And Evan Bernstein. Okay, do, do you guys want to guess what happened on June 19th? 240 BC? 240 BC. What happened? Eratosthenes. Do we know that name? Eratosthenes. Oh, yeah. That's right. Guess what Small he did? A friend of Steve's. He estimated the circumference of the Earth with a stick oh, in the sun. Oh, a stick, yeah. That's right. That's that was right. awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. It was. He was so close. He was very close. He was in a stick in the sun. I know. He was in a few sun. degrees, yeah. I yeah. just like how you're talking about it like you just saw it on cable last weekend. No, I just <laughs> remembered awesome. it. I, Trigonometry I just, rules, man. He, he basically, <laughs> oh, at, high, at high noon, he saw how big the shadow was, then traveled a couple hundred miles away, and then at noon saw what the shadow was for that, and then from there just determined, boom, 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 circumference of the Earth. And that also shows that a lot of people um, mistakenly believe that the Greeks did not know that the Earth was not flat. So that pretty conclusively shows that they figured out long ago that the Earth was spherical. That's true. They didn't not know that the Earth was not flat. <laughs> so what, what did they know? Were you, were you confused slightly by my use of negatives? <laughs> I love triple negatives. Well, I hate saying spherical because I know somebody will write it and say, well, technically, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an oblate yeah. spheroid. Yeah. <laughs> but they also had other ways. They, they could tell by the way, when a, a ship was sailing away or approaching that you, you could see the mast first uh, if it was approaching you. Or even the, even the shadow of the Earth on the moon do, during a, um, a lunar eclipse. Yep. Mm-hmm. How many years does the word long represent? Like if you say a long, 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 long time ago, which was that like? Four longs? Furlongs? It's a context. <laughs> Is that where we get furlong? Depends on the context. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's right. If you, had a, if you had a really intense pain for a very long, long, long time, that could be 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, let's go on to some news items. You may have noticed the dates are a bit off when we're recording this show. That's because of the upcoming... Uh, the amazing meeting, TAM, and also uh, I'll be away for a week, so we have to pre-record. We have to get a couple of shows ahead, so we're going to be re- recording four shows over the next two weeks, so the dates won't be our typical delay, uh, but you'll figure it out. <laughs> You're smart. <laughs> <laughs> so first news item, an Associated Press report on the government research into complementary and alternative medicine. This is one of those rare mainstream uh, journalistic reports that gets it just about right. Not yeah. quite. Yeah. Did good job, though. Yeah, very good job. So they made a lot of observations that I've been making over the years that uh, the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine has spent $2.5 billion over the last wow. 10 years, and they have practically nothing to show for it. Whoa. Nothing. Nothing. So, for example, they reviewed uh, the fact that they've studied echinacea for colds, ginkgo biloba for memory, glucosamine conjointin for arthritis, and black cohosh for menopause, all no effect. Salt palmetto for prostate, nothing. Shark cartilage for cancer, nothing. The only thing that has had a, uh, a positive effect in the herbal medicine realm is ginger capsules may be helpful for chemotherapy nausea. So maybe helpful meaning, Steve, that they have to do further tests even to even determine if that one kernel 
that has That's come out true. of all it of need, this. It needs some follow-up. That's right. But the preliminary evidence is positive. The we- Here's their one gaffe where, where they write, acupuncture has been shown to help certain conditions. Ah, yes. That's not, nope. that's not true. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Although later on, the, they do get this tidbit right. Uh, while quoting the current director of the NCAM, Dr. Briggs, they write, in an interview last year, shortly after becoming the Federal Center's new director, Dr. Josephine Briggs said it had a strong research record and praised the many big-name scientists who had sought its grants. She conceded there were no big wins from its first decade, other than a study that found acupuncture helped knee arthritis. That finding was called into question when a later larger study found that sham treatment worked just as well. So they got that in, so that was good. Yeah, they got that, but that's, you know, they still make it, it's still, though, repeating this myth that acupuncture's been shown to work, all based upon this bizarre conclusion that placebo acupuncture works. It's just really bizarre. Uh, but they got a lot of good, a lot of good digs in, a lot of good quotes. They quoted Stephen Barrett. Yeah. Yep. Dr. Barrett, good man. Very good, runs, runs Quack Watch, very good man. And Stephen Barrett said, there had, there's been a deliberate policy of never saying something doesn't work. It's as though you can only speak in one direction. Again, absolutely correct. The NCAM, after 10 years of research and lots and lots of negative studies, won't come out and say, this doesn't work. This alternative modality does not work. It's always, it works or it needs more study. Or the placebo works, therefore that shows something interesting is going on. We have to research this more. You know, that's it. They, they spin everything in a positive way, which means that this is propaganda, not scientific research. So, Steve, that being true and uh, these facts being understood now, do you think this is going to have a change in the amount of money the government spends or, or public perception in any way? No. I don't know. It's a start. It's a move in the right direction. Over the last few months, you know, we've been calling on a lot of, our, a lot of the science and medicine blogs to defund the NCAM. You know, when uh, Obama got into office and he was saying, hey, well, you know, can you shoot me some ideas about what I should be doing? Like, number one, defund the NCAM. It's a waste of money. Yeah. All it does is promote nonsense and pseudoscience and medicine. It's all about propaganda and promotion. It hasn't produced anything. It's squandering taxpayers mon- taxpayer money. There are, anything that was worth funding could be funded through other departments at the NIH. You know, right. the, the herbal medicine studies, they're fine. Just fund them through the botanical research you know, wing of the NIH. You don't have to do it through alternative medicine. And everything else can fend for itself. If you, if you can make a good case that something needs to be studied, then submit it to funding along with everybody else. It was all about creating a double standard, a special magical standard for things that don't really deserve to be researched only because they have political backing from a few mm-hmm. true believers. That's what it was all about. So in, in the face of strong evidence and of a total waste of of over 2 billion dollars you know the sad fact is is that this probably won't have any kind of effect the, no one thing is this is so entrenched now uh that i don't think any one good ap article is going to do it but you know we have it's good to see this in a mainstream news report getting a lot of play like on MSNBC and other right. places. So it's a start. We have to keep it going though, you know. And we'll look at the uh, the Oprah article in Newsweek last yeah. week. Yeah. I mean that's another one. Um, hopefully this will continue. This trend and will and my jaw almost hit the ground when I saw this one. The Huffington Post. The HuffPo. The HuffPo. Yeah. Pub- published an article about the the lack of a of a of an association between vaccines and autism. Must be and, an anomaly. And, well, I don't know. I, I'll tell you, in all seriousness, 
they had contacted David Gorsky from Science Based Medicine cool. after he had written one of his articles. We, we had written collectively a number of articles uh, critical of the Huffington Post, and they contacted David saying, Hey, we want to get the science right. You guys want to you know, help us and contribute. Really? And we actually had to have an internal discussion about do we want to contribute to the Huffington Post? So I think that our criticism got wow. their attention. Good. And we hit them hard. We hit them oh, yeah. really hard. And, you know, we do have a man on the inside uh, at the Huffington Post. Yes, we do. There's a, a member do. of the New York City Skeptics is there, and I, I've mentioned him on Skeptic before. And he's he's doing a valiant job of standing up against the tide of pseudoscience. So, I don't know, it's nice to see, and every little bit helps, you know. Yes, I, I, I honestly think that, that we our criticism had an influence on them, and that Sweet. now we're, we're seeing them at least trying to put some balance in there. False balance is, is not great, but at least it's better than all woo and all nonsense. So we'll see. Maybe we're having an effect. You just got to keep hammering away. And speaking of having an effect, the next news item I think is also a huge win. Uh, this one is a follow-up on Simon Singh. And he, you know, remember the British Chiropractic Association sued Simon Singh using the horrific uh, English libel laws for saying that they happily promote bogus therapies. And Simon is now in the process of appealing the preliminary decision that what he meant when he wrote that was that they're committing conscious fraud, which is not what he meant. However, in reaction to the BCA's lawsuit and really the the skeptical movement's network creating a backlash against the British Chiropractic Association, that backlash has now really got them spooked. Yeah, you know, I, I learned about this via Twitter. Uh, thank you to everybody who sent this in because it's so fantastic. Um, <laughs> the, this, this big association of chiropractors, the McTimony Association, they sent out this email to all their members saying that uh, because of what they consider to be a witch hunt against chiropractors, they're suggesting that every chiropractor take down their website immediately Mm -hmm. and remove all of the pamphlets from their waiting rooms that might suggest that they're a part of this association and also check their Google, like Google their own names and wherever they find references to themselves doing chiropractic to email those people and ask to have the reference removed. They're basically encouraging their members to completely withdraw from their online presence. And it's all because of this campaign of skeptics against chiropractors going after them, flooding the basically the British equivalent of a better business bureau, flooding the government with complaints that these chiropractors are violating advertising standards code by promising to cure diseases that they can never cure. And it's clearly having an effect. The chiropractors are running scared. And here's the beautiful irony, right? So uh, Simon Singh accused them of promoting therapies without evidence. Rather than providing the evidence, they sue him, right? right. Now, in order, in order to uh, get back at them for doing that, skeptics are appropriately complaining to the government about chiropractors claiming to cure diseases or to treat ailments that there's no evidence for. So their advice to chiropractors is not to make sure that your claims are evidence-based, make sure 
that your that your claims are true. It's remove all your claims from the yeah. web right now. Duck, run for cover. I mean, and you know, this think is about this that. is a fantastic example of it's grassroots skepticism man. having a serious <laughs> effect on chiropractors' business. And to you know, how many listeners do we have a week now? Is it like fifty thousand? It's more than that, right? It's about sixty. Fif- sixty thousand. Six, sixty thousand. There are sixty thousand of you out there right now. I know that right now, like you're listening to this, and it's just you riding the subway. But there are actually sixty thousand of you. And if you guys go out and case the web and find chiropractors in your country, in your state, in your neighborhood, if you find them advertising services that you know they cannot cure, things like diarrhea or autism or AIDS, for God's sakes, or you know any, any disease, basically, that's, that's worse than a backache, then report them. Because that's what is happening here. People are reporting them in individually, and it's adding up to a huge pain in the ass yeah. for them. If you're, in the the, if you're in the United States, right, pain in the neck. If you're in the United States, so uh, if, they're, if they're selling something, you should report them to the Federal Trade Commission. If it's just their services that they're offering, you should probably report them to your state's uh, board of health, the licensing board of health of your state. And they do take these complaints, and they take them very seriously. And I think it is about time that the public you know, didn't just turn, a, turn away and turn a blind eye towards these kind of, of bogus, dare I say, claims. Hmm. Fantastic. Dare. Good day Go to be a skeptic. Yes. So those are two nice, two nice items this yeah. week. <laughs> to, to switch gears, Bob, you're going to tell us a, a little bit about quantum mechanics, one of our favorite oh, topics. Oh, God, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Well. Don't worry, Jay. I'm pretty sure that this week the news is that it turns out quantum mechanics actually can make you wish the universe to do whatever you want. Pretty sure. All right. Well, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, they successfully pulled off a pretty <laughs> cool experiment that might bring a, us a little bit closer to quantum computers you may have been reading about in the past 10 years or so, as well as figuring out exactly kind of where this fuzzy boundary is between the classical world and the quantum world. Now, by classic world, I mean everyday objects and movements, that things that you see and do every day, things that we've evolved to deal with, and consequently, they all seem to kind of make some kind of sense. You don't throw a ball to your to your kid and then have something really bizarre happen to the ball that just kind of seems to defy all of all of physics. It all makes sense at at the scale that that we're used to. The quantum world, on the other hand, is that crazy counterintuitive world that takes place at the atomic scale. But it's only crazy and counterintuitive because we evolved in the macroscopic world. That's yeah, that's kind of what I was alluding to, yeah. Yeah, it's it's all relative. I mean, if we were subatomic creatures, it would the quantum world well, it might make sense to us. Yeah, but our brains would be way too small. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> unless they were spread out over a large area. Or unless we had quantum computers for brains. Aha. There's two key aspects of quantum mechanics that kind of tie in to this experiment that I need to go over. We've we've discussed them before, I think relatively quickly. I want to go over them just a little bit. Quantum superposition is one. Basically, that just means that a particle is in all possible states at once. If you determine that a particle can be in these 10 different types of states, it can do these 10 different types of things. Quantum superposition tells us that it does, when you're not really looking at it, it's, it's in all of those states at once. Like the position of, of an electron in orbit around the nucleus of an atom. It's not really like a planet orbiting 
its sun. It's really, they, call, they refer to it as an electron cloud. It's a cloud of probability. It's really in all of these positions all at the same time. And that's something that really, you just got to really accept. It's not the fact that we don't know until we look. It's not like it could be A, B, and C, and you don't know until you really look. No, quantum mechanics tells us that it really is all three at the same time. It's a superposition of all these possible states. And Bob, by looking, and this is a, this is a point I think where that generates a lot of confusion. Yeah. We don't mean that it has to be known by a person or a conscious no. entity. We just mean that it has to interact with, with something the environment. else. It yeah, has to, with it anything. De- decoheres. Yeah. It intera- right. Any interaction with the environment doesn't really require an intelligence. Now, the other aspect of quantum mechanics that's fundamental that also ties into this experiment is entanglement. I know we've covered this a little bit. Basically, quantum entanglement is the fact that certain quantum objects that have interacted in the past or they were created by the same process, they become linked or correlated un- in, in a way unlike anything in classical physics. Now, this link between these two particles, whatever they are, uh, manifests itself such that a change to one affects the other instantaneously, whether it's a millimeter away or a million megaparsecs away. So one particle Mm -hmm. on Earth and another particle galaxies away, there's some sort of connection between one such that if you measure one, then the other particle will will have a, a specific attribute already set because you have measured this this first particle. Now, it's important to note when I say this is that you cannot use this information to communicate. There is, you know, you can say, you know, maybe there's some sort of superluminal link between these two, but you cannot communicate any information. You're not violating really the speed of light. And all you're doing really is communicating randomness. So you, you don't think you're going to be setting up some sort of uh, communication or, Bob, do you think it's accurate to say this? It's almost as if once you have these two linked particles, their probability, their quantum probability equations are really one equation. And when you, oh, yeah, sol- absolutely. you solve for one, you're solving for both yes, simultaneously. Absolutely. So if absolutely. one, if, yeah, and 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 one of the aspects of this entanglement is that, for example, it it maintains the conservation of these properties, right? So you can't add any net spin to the universe out of nowhere. So if one of these particles is spin up, the other one is spin down to balance the books, right? To balance the equation. Absolutely. Yes. Is it always a pair? No, I don't think so. No, I think you you can entangle multiple different things with each other. They've done some really funky stuff with this. But Steve, you mentioned spin, and that's a a good segue for me because a lot of times scientists entangle something like spin particle spin. Now, you think you might know what spin is, and it's a decent analogy, but really when they when physicists talk about particle spin, it's really not like a top spinning. It's it's different from that. It's just, they're just trying to create some sort of mental hook that people can use to understand this stuff. So what these guys did at NIST, they entangled something that everybody is familiar with, not something esoteric like spin. But according to John Jost, he's a graduate student at the University of Colorado at Boulder, he worked, he, was, he worked on the team of researchers. He said that this experiment demonstrates entanglement in a system that everybody can relate to, mechanical oscillators. Mechanical oscillators pervade our everyday life from vibrating violin strings to the pendulum on a grandfather clock. So now the experiment itself, I won't go into too much detail, but basically what they did was they took a beryllium ion, which is essentially a beryllium atom with some of the electrons um, 
missing, which gives it a, uh, an electric charge, and they entangled its spin with another beryllium ion. So now you've got this entangled spin. Say if one is up, then other one, the other one would have to be uh, spin down if you measured it. Using lasers then, in a, in a really creative way, um, they, they cooled down these, these atoms while maintaining their entanglement, which was an achievement unto itself because it showed that you can actually make these changes to entangled particles and, and, uh, and leave the entanglement intact. But the really cool thing was that they then used these laser pulses to transfer the spin entanglement to an oscillating back-and-forth entanglement. You see what I'm saying? So this means that they move back and forth in exact unison regardless of separation because part of the experiment was to separate them, and they moved in unison. So theoretically then, you could move them billions of miles away, and they still would be vibrating in, in perfect unison. This may not only help elucidate quantum mechanics, but it could also help with the development of quantum, quantum computers. Jost said that we demonstrated for the first time that you can use pulse lasers to cool down quantum devices without destroying their states. Quantum computers inevitably heat up when operating, so they would need to be cooled using something like the technique we demonstrated. So hopefully this will uh, really forge a path uh, yeah. for quantum computers that something that we'll see uh, in our lifetimes. Yeah, it's Be one cool. more baby step. And, and also just to emphasize the key point here, this is the first time anyone has demonstrated mechanical entanglement, right? Entangle, entanglement with, with a really mechanical uh, feature right. of, these, of these particles as right. opposed to like a more quantum feature. Exactly. Okay, cool. Let's just do some, a quick follow-up on the Schwein flu. More Schwein. Jawohl. The World Health Organization, or WHO, has officially declared mm-hmm. the first pandemic of the 21st century, the first pandemic in 41 years. Is it time to panic? The current H1N1 swine flu. It's time to pandemic. How come? Pandemic. I can't believe there's a pandemic like and I'm calm about this. I always thought, wow, when we, I, imagine if we have a pandemic, we're all screwed. And, it, and I'm okay with it. What the hell? Well, that's because, you know, when you're thinking about that in the future, all you picture is the pandemic, and you forget that life actually just sort of keeps going on regardless. Plus, also, another big thing is the actual definition of pandemic. We just assume that pandemic means, wow, millions of people are going to die and we're totally screwed. But no, it's really – it has no really relation with with how deadly it is. It's just a matter of, you know, how widespread it is, how many countries are impacted. That's really just what pandemic means. That's That's right, Bob, because people – and they they equate it with what happened in 1918 in the pandemic in which millions upon millions of people died. Yeah. So automatically, you know, their fears are summoned, and uh, yeah, that's, right. that's what they equate it that with. That was also an H1N1 pandemic. And, of course, while we don't suggest that all our listeners panic, don't necessarily breathe a sigh of relief yet because right. the second round could be coming at any time, right? And so if everybody that had the flu right now just bucked up, stayed home, got better, this whole thing would go away, right? Yeah, that would put a dampener on it, yeah, um, if everyone who actually had the bug, whether they knew it or not, but that's that's the problem. So there's an incubation period, and that's where it gets spread around. Here are some quick stats. So the flu has spread to 74 countries, nearly, infecting nearly 29,000 people with 144 deaths. Uh, the WHO has bumped up the their um, warning level to phase six, which is, I guess, the highest alert. That means that it's a pandemic and it's unstoppable. It does not, however, say anything about 
how severe the flu is or how, what, what its potential is to kill. Now, to put that into perspective, an, an average flu season each year kills about half a million people. 500,000. So far, we've had 144 deaths from the, the current H1N1. Right. So it's, we, it could be a pandemic that actually is just like a little minor second flu season this year. But as Rebecca said, said the fear is that it's going to come back in a second wave, you know, travel around the world, you could imagine, sort of hits with a second wave. And it really depends mm-hmm. entirely on what it's mutated into when it comes around, it could just fizzle. It could just be like a mild case of the, uh, another mild flu season, or it could be the 1918, 1918 pandemic where it had a very high infectivity and also uh, mortality rate. So we, we won't know until we know, right? We won't know until it's happened. Mm. But in the meantime, this does put the uh, development of a vaccine into full swing. It really does take any any breaks off of developing the vaccine. Whether or not the vaccination program will start to actually you know, put vaccines in people's arms before the second wave hits also remains to be seen, but, but probably. It will probably will get, the vaccines will be available you know, before. We, if, if we are going to get hit with a, with a really big pandemic, it'll probably, we'll get the vaccines before that happens. Get those chicken eggs cooked. Wasn't there a problem, though, with um, the number of eggs that, you know, we only have enough for either the swine flu vaccinations or the regular flu vaccinations? Oh, so we've got to choose, huh? Well, that's, you know, maybe that's old news. I know that that was, that was a concern a few months ago, yeah. um, was that we would have to pick. And at this point, the swine flu isn't as deadly as the, you know, winter flu, so we would focus on that instead. But now that it's reaching pandemic levels, yeah. they might switch that. The, the WHO is now recommending that pharmaceutical companies make swine flu vaccine. So that's one of the, that's yeah. one of the implications of their announcement today. A quick email. This one comes from Ainlina, Yay. which is a pseudonym, actually. And Ainlina writes, Hello, all. I am now 11 but have been listening to the podcast since I was 10 and have just heard the episode SGU number 77 in which you ask if there are any 10-year-old skeptics. If you mention me on the podcast, please refer to me as Anlina, my online nickname. Thank you for the great podcast. P.S. I come from England. <laughs> well, thank you, Anlina. I think that's awesome. the, the youngest direct email we've gotten from a listener. Yeah, and one of the cutest. And definitely cute. Definitely one of the cutest. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you. You're yes, awesome. thank you, Anlina. That guys, that that was completely adorable. Come on. Yeah, was yeah. It? Do you do you I, want to read it again, Jane, in a British accent? No. <laughs> I I want to interview her. Charlie <laughs> bit my <laughs> finger. Charlie Char- bit my finger. That really hurt. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I want to ask something now because I, I I love that Evan remembered that. <clears throat> I want to know if people in England thought that that was as cute as the rest of the world. The, the Charlie YouTube thing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the well, Charlie YouTube A hundred million viewers can't be wrong. All, right? you know, all the kids in, in England are that cute. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what are you they talking are. about? <laughs> Rebecca, you're so out of we, the loop, man. You ever heard... Yeah, the Charlie bit my finger YouTube videos. Is these parents film their British kids and put it on YouTube and they... There's a few like really really cute ones, uh, but it's ninety percent of the cuteness is these two little kids speaking in these perfect British accents. I see. 
Charlie. Charlie bit me. All yeah, right. that's all right. That's Whatever. pretty cute. Right. I did it better than the kids. Uh, two, one, more, one more email. This one comes from Mark B. from Tampa, Florida. Mark writes, I love your show. It is the best podcast I subscribe to. I have oh, only listened to you. about 15 episodes, but that is enough of a sample size for me to know that the show is, like, totally radical. Dude. I have a two-part question that has totally. been bugging me for a while. As you can tell by my subject, it is regarding evolution. My question is as follows. Why do our genes want to get to the next generation or the future? Or do our genes know something about the future that is so wonderful that could be the reason why they are evolving to make it there over the millions of years of evolution on this planet? Why would our genes or any species' genes want to live to make it to the future? This question is kind of philosophical, so will you give me your opinion or the leading hypothesis of the experts? Thank you for reading my question, and I wish you continued success for your show and organization in the future. Genes don't want anything. That's right. Genes don't want anything. <laughs> Pretty the, easy going, actually. Those genes that happen to have the characteristics that make them more likely to survive and get passed on to the next generation are the ones that will predominate. It's just math and statistics. Yeah, it's kind of like reaching into a, a, a bag of ping pong balls and pulling one out and asking, why did that one want to come out? Right. But it, it is true that when we talk about evolution, we do talk about it as if there is an intention there about you know, creatures evolving. And we, you know, we, do, we say it in a, as if there's a purposeful intention to it. it. It's a bias in the way we think about it, I think. When, when obviously scientists are thinking about it, or when we're being particularly careful, uh, then we will sort of consciously talk about the mechanism of evolution in a more a rational and scientific way. But when we're not really being careful, we revert to this kind of intentional language, which I think is what generates a lot of this exact kind of confusion about it. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's, it's kind of like, it's shorthand, um, the way you think about evolution when you're just chatting about it. But when you get down to basics, it, it becomes a little more finesse. So, yeah, I mean, the basic idea is that nothing wants anything. It's just a matter of what is the most fit to its environment. That's the trait that gets passed along to the next generation. What it's are the pressures a, acting against it? Right. And it's actually a critical concept to understanding how evolution works, that it doesn't see the future. Individuals, population species, and just the process itself can't plan multiple steps ahead. It can't anticipate future needs. It's just whatever is more likely to survive right at the moment is the stuff that survives. But because changes, changes can accumulate over time, when you look back, it looks as if things were heading in the direction of where they are right now. But you're looking back with the bias of knowing what the outcome is. Yeah, remember that there's no there's no actual ladder that humans sit on top of. It's you know it's just a continuously evolving bush. world. Yeah. Well, we have a great interview coming up with Richard Wiseman, so let's go on to our interview. Joining us once again is Dr. Richard Wiseman. Uh, Richard, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Uh, pleasure to be here. Always very exciting. And thank you for having me back. It's our pleasure. It's been, uh, I guess the last time we spoke to you was at TAM6, right? Has it been really almost a year? 
it, time flies. It feels just like yesterday. It's incredible. It does. And unfortunately, we're not going to get to see you at TAM 7 this year, I understand. Is that correct? Uh, I believe that's the uh, the case. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm emceeing in TAM London, um, so that's going to be in October, but uh, not going to be across in uh, in Vegas for this particular TAM. But I will be there. My thoughts will be there with you, and uh, in, in some ways, that's more entertaining than actually having me. So um, yeah, <laughs> okay. it's, it's a it's a win win situation. We're primarily talking to you tonight about your latest project, which I understand is the first Twitter based research. Can you tell us about that? Uh, yes, I, I'm a big fan of Twitter. Uh, I, I kind of like the, the instantaneous nature of it. And uh, a little while ago, I was playing around with the idea of somehow using it, somehow turning it into a, a research tool rather than just finding out uh, what everyone's doing uh, right at that very moment. And I was trying to think of projects that would, would work for that and decided to go with the idea of remote viewing, this idea that somehow a group of people can psychically tune into someone else and tell that person uh, about their surroundings. And um, that, that was the, the, the sort of idea coming to fruition. I mentioned it's a new sciences magazine. They're very excited about it. And so we ran these various trials where I went to randomly selected places, said, uh, okay, everyone, where am I? Uh, all these uh, hundreds of uh, tweets came in from all around the world. And then we presented people with five photographs. One of them uh, from the actual location, the other four decoys. We had everyone vote. And uh, we looked to see whether the majority uh, vote was correct on each trial. And are you ready to unveil your results? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I can tell you now that we did four trials, and on each and every single trial, the group missed. Uh, so not exactly resounding evidence for remote viewing. Uh, so the, the majority vote on each one went with the wrong location. So on uh, one particular instance, I was standing looking at quite a modern um, uh, kind of uh, multi-story building, and the group voted that I was uh, in the countryside. Uh, and another one, I was under an unusual-looking canopy, and everyone thought I was in a graveyard. So, um, as I say, not, not compelling evidence for psychic ability. I don't think we're going to be going for Randy's million dollars right yet. Right. And, and how did you determine how the, the group voted? Uh, well, that, that's just the majority vote. So, so you, uh, you have A to E as the, the five photographs. Everyone comes online, they vote for one of them, and you just look at the, the photograph that gets the most votes. Um, and, of course, there's going to be all sorts of biases in there in terms of order effects and one photograph being more attractive than others. But you would think over several trials, if it were a large enough effect, and because the American government famously put uh, millions of dollars into this, this notion of psychic spying because they claimed or, or thought it might be a very reliable effect, um, that, that something would emerge from the noise. But we really didn't get any evidence for that at all. Just noise. We only got a lot of noise. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, th I think the only conclusion we can make is that nobody on Twitter is psychic. That, that, well, as a group, that, that's the case. I mean, someone has suggested, a few people have suggested, that we should find the people that did consistently well and, and retest them and possibly put them in for, for Randy's uh, challenge, which is a, a possibility. I mean, the, uh, the, 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 the fact is that with this many taking part, you'll always expect some people to get four out of four, as indeed they did. Um, and some people kind of had fun with it because, you know, you could see the amount of correspondence between what you were thinking and the actual target picture. I had loads of people coming online saying, well, you know, I voted for one picture, but now I found out what the actual target was. I can see all sorts of correspondences with the thoughts that are going through my mind. Of and course. that kind of, yeah, which is, we know, underlies, you know, a belief in the paranormal. But if you have a dream and then something happens the next day, we're really good at finding correspondences between the dream and the, the following day's uh, events. 
Um, and then that can drive some sort of notion that, yes, indeed, the two are actually linked. So I think even just giving people the experience of blind judging um, is, a, is a worthwhile uh, experience for them, and uh, certainly that's a key part of the methodology here. Hey, Richard, did anybody uh, put down your protocol? Um, I, I, quite a few people. I mean, what's nice about all these mass uh, projects is people do get involved uh, with the actual um, sort of minutiae of exactly what we're doing. And of course, that can be a very open debate. So a lot of that is, is on my blog. Uh, I think it's a very tight protocol. The, uh, uh, the targets were randomly chosen and uh, so on. Um, it's only four trials. So there's a very good argument that it would have to be a very large effect if we're going to detect it. Uh, that's certainly the case. But, but I like the idea of people engaging uh, in, in criticism of it. Some people thought that maybe you know, a private detective might have been following me to each of the locations and then uh, secretly sending out messages about where I was. Um, but we actually took quite a lot of care to make it as tight as possible. So I think it's a fairly decent protocol. And uh, for each location, you have a picture of yourself at the location, so it's clear that that's where you were. I pr- particularly like the picture that you had taken of, your, of you at this uh, location for trial three. I, I remember it very well, um, because that, that's where I was sporting uh, a, uh, a Skeptics Guide to the Universe t-shirt, uh, which actually you kindly gave me last time we met in, uh. in town. Oh, that's what I liked about that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd, isn't it? It's like an unconscious priming effect. It's difficult to say exactly what it is, and uh, and then it just becomes so obvious. So, uh, so yes, I was doing my bit there. I don't think anyone actually. I mean, I was very conscious about wearing that that, that t-shirt. Uh, I don't think anyone actually, uh, kind of in the the Twitter streams, sort of said, "Oh, you know, I'm picking up skeptical uh, vibes," as, as you might have expected them to have done. But um, yes, I, I, I was wearing that t-shirt throughout the whole thing. That t-shirt is now part of a groundbreaking science experiment. Oh, awesome. Right. But there was some intentional blindness going on, you think? People weren't noticing the, the skeptical T-shirt? They, they weren't noticing it, I, I think, uh, because I'm such a sort of naturally charismatic and compelling figure. <laughs> they would be drawn to me and away from that T-shirt. That's the way I look at it. Um, that's certainly one way to look at right, it. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. We're talking about psychology of delusion here. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a helpful way of looking at it. <laughs> This is a replication of the kind of studies that have been done before, you know, remote viewing, and that's interesting as far as it goes. But I think more interesting is, the, is using Twitter to do this kind of experiments. It was this, the, the breakthrough sort of design of this study. And just you know, reading your blog, it, it struck me. It's like, wow, it, we, there really is a new age of this kind of psychological research dawning where we can use these mass networking software that we have or these, these networks to, to do this kind of mass research. So I, I suspect you're just getting started with this kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. For me, that's the real value and interest in it. Um, I didn't really expect we'd get a remote viewing uh, effect. But I, as you say, I mean, I've always been interested in mass participation studies, um, conducted some of the very first ones uh, with the BBC around about sort of 10, 12 years ago when the notion of phoning in to a, a television station was really a novel idea. And we had 30,000 people do it even back then. Uh, then I did the search for the world's funniest joke. That's about one and a half million people coming online. And, and Twitter gives you this, this kind of instant feedback. And, I, and as social scientists, I still don't know that we know exactly what to do with it as a tool. I mean, when I first got onto it, I, I asked all my 
um, the people following me, just to say how happy they were, one out of ten. And all these hundreds of ratings came in. And you think, you know, that there is something to be done here. You, you could quickly assess, take a snapshot of the whole mood of the nation, the whole um, mood of the world even with it. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't think we know what we've kind of got here. Um, and it's fun sort of just trying different things out and, and even finding out whether there is a community of people that are prepared to engage with this sort of research. My feeling is there really is. I mean, there's about 7,500 people following me now, and they're the sorts of people that just like to get involved in these sorts of projects. So I, I, this is very, very early stages, I think. Yeah, you're, you're almost like a psychology professor with 7,000 college students you could, you could experiment on. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, and, and also all around the world with you know, a massive uh, range of expertise and backgrounds and, and so on. So there is something to be done here. I mean, just a few moments ago, just for fun, I noticed that there's a new element that's been discovered and it hasn't been named yet. So I just really? the camp. Yeah, yeah, yes, it came out on BBC News uh, a little while ago, um, as in you know a few hours ago. Um, cool. So I just, just started a, a campaign on Twitter so that we should uh, name it Kryptonite. Because uh, that would be a, a kind of fun, uh, fun thing, and, and so already that's spreading around the uh, the networks and and so on. And let's say I just don't think we're quite, you know, used to this this way of operating. And, it, and it's fun to be one of the, the kind of pioneers in it. How many protons does it have? I'm, I'm a psychologist. All I can tell you, I can tell you <laughs> how it would have felt to discover it, but I can't, I can't tell you anything. <laughs> <laughs> On your blog, you link to a site called Pick the Perp, which I which I was playing with for a while, where they show you five mugshots and then list. You know, one of these people was charged with breaking and entering, and then you got to decide who it was that that was charged with that. So I, I did. I don't know forty or so runs, and God, I was right at twenty percent. <laughs> I could not get above twenty percent. It is random guessing. It really is. But that's a similar kind of thing to what you're doing. It's actually a lot of, a lot of fun. Yeah, that's right. And what's interesting about that, and this again links to the remote viewing, is when I did the, the pick the bird thing, um, is, is that you, you're really quite confident in your decision. You, you sort of look and you go, yeah, that one. They, they look a real wrong one. Uh, you know, that, that's definitely a breaking and entry uh, type of person. And then you find out that you, you're, of course, carrying stereotypes around in your head. Um, and, and with the remote viewing, a lot of people were very confident they'd got it right up until getting the target. And then they started to reinterpret their experience and so on. So it's this weird right. kind of confidence until you get the feedback. Uh, and one of the things we saw in the remote viewing experiment is that when you said to people, when you did an uncontrolled trial, which is you said, okay, here's the target, you know, just how much correspondence was there between your thoughts and that target, the believers were way above the skeptics. They could see correspondences left, right, and center, and yet in the controlled trials, no difference in their performance. So you can definitely see that they are reading illusory correspondences in, into that, which gives right. us some insight into their belief. And, and even on that pick the perp thing, the the um, psychology is so funny because when I was doing it, of course, when you get it right, you're like, oh, I knew it was that guy. You know, of course it was that guy, right? Even though you're still doing chance guessing, and and um, when when I got it wrong, I found myself thinking because it tells you right away who's right and who's wrong. That whoever was the right one, that that would have been my second choice. That, that's right. It, you you <laughs> right. convince yourself in the face of uh, all that kind of disconfirming evidence that there is still an underlying yeah. skill. That's right. Somebody on the blog said, you know, it's the same with them with uh, lotto numbers every month. You know, they choose their numbers, uh, different ones come up, and they go, you know, I almost chose those winning numbers. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just our ability to delude ourselves, fantastic. Uh, Richard, before I forget, Rebecca can't join us for the mm -hmm. interview part of the show tonight. 
but she emailed me a question, and she she said, um, you know, please pass this along. So I want I want to make sure I get it correct. Her question is, just who in the hell do you think you are anyway? That was her question. <laughs> right, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, and and if, uh, if it was from a philosophy student, I would assume it's, it's got more behind it. Uh, but it's from Rebecca, so I assume it's quite literal. Uh, who in the hell do I think I am? I think I'm a charismatic, good-looking, highly approachable, extremely intelligent psychology professor. The evidence, and we are talking about this confirming evidence and how you deal with that, uh, would argue against all of those things, um, but I continue, <laughs> I, I continue in that belief and have done for 43 years now, uh, which is, is, is quite remarkable. Hey, I have, a, I have an offbeat question. Last time we spoke to Phil, something occurred to me. He was saying that um, the last person that the JREF tested, he was just mentioning how the woman was driving home, and after she was on her way home, I guess, and it, it, she started to rationalize what was going on, like why she failed, and, and there was like a time lapse and it took her, I guess it took her some time to like come up with a rationalization. And is there anything behind that? Like, is there like a, a time period where people would tend to do that? That's a very good question. I, I've seen it time and again. And it's one of the reasons why we filmed the reveal and one of the reasons why um, uh, Randy always asked them to sign a piece of paper to say they're happy with the conditions prior to the test. I, I think there is this initial period of disbelief. I completely get that because if you think about it from their perspective, the reason why most of them are there is they're convinced they have these abilities. Their experience, which might be 20 years of experience, is people going, my goodness, how on earth did you know that? And then suddenly, under test conditions, it all evaporates. And you think, well, hold on a second, I couldn't have been wrong for 20 years. All those millions of people that have had readings with me, they're all not deluded. There must be something wrong with the test. But I think that notion takes a while to kick in. I think there's an initial shock. There's this questioning of... of self-identity, my goodness, maybe I can't do this, and then there's a slow working out that, oh, hold on a second, I can do it, it's the test that was wrong. And, and normally that takes, you know, a couple of days. You know, we, we saw it with this particular um, test, and in quite a bizarre way, actually, I mean, the, the, the sort of um, uh, kind of reflection involved questioning the, the actual mechanics of the test, which is quite odd, where they, they, they got a score of 0 out of 10 and managed to convert it into 10 out of 10, um, which was really quite bizarre. But yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a, a natural thing. It's cognitive dissonance, right? Is that well, it, yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of notion of holding two thoughts which are incompatible. Uh, we, we all find very sort of difficult, so we try and rationalize it in, in yeah. some way. And because it's easier to, to question the test, which was a one-off, rather unusual experience, than, than 20 years of, of giving readings. I mean, what, what I find odd about it is that I'd have more time for the claimants if they just said, okay, fine. Um, you know, that's the way the test results went, and I'm not going to try and explain it away or come up with excuses. Maybe I just had an off day or, or, or whatever, and not try and actually blame the test. So, but yeah. but they, they don't do that. I mean, often there's a lot of ego uh, involved in, in these things. But, it, you know, on, on the day, it was, a, it was a zero out of ten. And actually, I was talking to a psychic uh, recently. This isn't a particularly funny story, but it's a true story. It's in a couple of days ago. And I said, what's the most annoying thing about being a professional psychic? And they said, well, the most annoying thing is people kind of make appointments with to see you, and then they just don't show up. And then I was thinking, well, as a professional psychic, doesn't that you know, challenge your belief that you can actually predict the future uh, in any sense at all, and they weren't having any of that, so we got into a kind of difficult discussion uh, about it. Mm -hmm. that just that notion of surely every single day of your life you get some disconfirming evidence that you can't predict the future, that you can't read the people's minds. 
and yet you still go along with this, this belief. Um, so it's, it's a very curious one. Yeah, it's, what's interesting is the rationalizations that people dream up in order to maintain their belief despite disconfirming evidence. But what we see then is where it gets really interesting, in my opinion, is when, when uh, groups of people formalize those rationalizations and, re- and develop them into a, a real edifice. Like I would think things like creationism, for example, is actually a, a formalized rationalization about why evolution is not true. Or if you talk to a lot of parapsychologists, they have very elaborate excuses for why the evidence isn't there to support their, their beliefs. Do, do, do you agree with what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Actually, strangely enough, I've just written a, a paper um, which looks at parapsychology in a rather unusual way so that um, most of the sceptical uh, debate around parapsychology has involved taking the positive studies that seem to show an effect and criticizing them. And what I'm interested in is how parapsychologists explain away the negative studies. So when they come out at null, what you do with that, because that should act against your hypothesis, but of course they've got various ways of explaining away, and the famous one is the experimenter effect. They blame the experimenter rather than the non-existent society. So I've become quite fascinated in, in when what happens when people get this disconfirming uh, evidence. And there hasn't been very much research uh, looking at that uh, in, in, in terms of, sort of sociology of, of science. Mm-hmm. I think it's a key role, particularly, as you say, when you get group or community factors where everyone's there to support one another, and you can see one person come up with an explanation to explain away some null evidence, and everyone goes, yeah, that's right, that's right. And yeah. then that becomes this accepted part of the belief system. And because we know from, from work on um, delusional belief systems, it's precisely how people with delusions work. No amount of evidence will disconfirm their, their, their delusional belief, or indeed no amount of lack of evidence will do it either. So it, it's, it is kind of fascinating. I think it's central to, to who we are. We saw it in the remote viewing experiment, as you say, we saw it in the Randy Challenge as well. Hey, if you want to study that, uh, Richard, I recommend you look at the alternative medicine literature. Uh, as, like I talked about recently, you had this acupuncture research which showed zero difference between the treatment arm and the placebo arm, and the acupuncturists go, oh, look at that, the placebo works too. Yeah. I mean, that was, their, that was their, their response, and that actually became their formal scientific interpretation of the study. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, one of the lessons I would really love to see in colleges and universities and so on is getting people to just give up their most cherished hypotheses. They're actually getting them to build up a, a quite a complex picture of how the world works in some particular way and then going, hey, look, you know, all of that's wrong. Let's all look at it another way. It's one of the demonstrations that I do in the talk where I get somebody out of the audience, I get them to choose a card, I do a whole thing about based on their body language, where they're looking, is it a red card, so on. The whole audience buys into the body language thing. And then I say, you know, these are marked cards. As soon as the person took the card, they knew which card they got. It's nothing to do with their body language. And I think that experience of building up some view of the world and then going, you know, I just got it badly wrong, is a really valuable one for everyone. That's always, to me, that's the core of skepticism, is just an understanding of, of human frailty, especially you know, cognitively, emotionally, intellectually, and in, in terms of how our brain processes information, is that we have these, this suite of, of flaws in, in how we think about things, and you really have to beat people over the head with it a lot before it really sinks in. And then, then they're skeptics and scientists. You know, and until that point, people just happily go along with their delusions, and it's really hard to dissuade them of them. 
And, and of course, the believers do argue the same about skeptics. I mean, some of the parapsychologists say, oh, the skeptics have got a worldview and no amount of evidence will, will, will change that. And it's one of the reasons why I do think it's helpful that skeptics in, engage in experimentation as well. Um, because that's all part of a, a more sort of positive way of looking at things. But, but you're absolutely right. Um, and it, it is just that, it, it, that fast, even something as, as trivial as the remote viewing, just typing in, yes, you know, blah, 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 you're standing in the middle of a, a car park, and then seeing you get it wrong, and then seeing the right one, and going, you know, yeah, I didn't mention the trees, but, but now I've seen it. You just realize how basic that um, mechanism is it's happening all of the time. Our ability to just convince ourselves that our, our hypothesis is right, even in the face of disconfirming evidence, it really is, um, you know, just just part of who we are. And one of the most amazing things is we've made as much progress as a human race as we have, given we're so bad at looking at the world. Richard, can you tell us what you're working on now? What's your next big project? Two things. Uh, right now, um, as in probably about 10 minutes' time, I'm going to be filming uh, a new Quarkology video, which is something I've been working on for quite a long while, and I think it works. You never really know with these things, but um, <laughs> I have the, uh, uh, the vanishing head illusion, uh, it, which, which will go out on Quarkology uh, very soon if it works. Uh, if it doesn't, then you won't hear anything about it at all, and I'll just pretend it never happened. And then I have a new book out in this country, uh, being the UK, uh, in July, um, which is called 59 Seconds, which takes a swipe at a lot of the myths of the self-help industry. So a lot of the stuff that people are being told, when you look at the science behind it, it's an absolute disgrace. I mean, uh, as in the, 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 the people are being told stuff that simply does not work. So it takes a, a whack at that, and then it's, I, I scoured all of the psychology journals uh, for anything you can do in less than a minute uh, that actually does work, that has some impact upon your mood or creativity uh, or, you know, the way you relate to others and so on. So it's called 59 Seconds, um, and it comes out in America in January. Uh, so um, it's exciting times. So let me get this straight. So first you trash all other self-help books, <laughs> and then you present your own. <laughs> um, you have detected the pattern. Uh, yes, yes. The, the, the two messages is that everything you've been told so far is wrong, and it's a lot easier than you think. Um, this is what psychologists call emotional hooks. Right. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the, the basic premise of it. But, but the, the myth-busting stuff on it was, was kind of fun, because they're, they're, you know, even like the old ideas about brainstorming, you know, the notion to get everyone in the room and all get to come up with as many ideas as possible, you know, just a terrible way of getting a group of people to actually come up with good ideas. It doesn't work at all. Wow. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's taking a, a look at all these things that we've been told and we, we all do on a daily basis. Is that true? Because I've been involved in brainstorming quite a lot in multiple different projects, and oh, it seems to generate ideas. You don't, you don't think that works? It, it absolutely does generate ideas, but what's much better is for everyone to generate those ideas on their own and then come into the room together. So not to do it as a group activity, because you get what's called social loafing, which is that some people just kick back from the table and don't contribute hardly anything at all, oh. and also anxiety about contributing anything. So if you get the same group of people to brainstorm, as it were, on their own, and then come in, you get about twice as many good ideas. Now, that's been known in psychology for, for quite some uh, quite a number of years. It's just not out there in the public domain. Um, so, so, yeah, in, in the book, I go through all these various myths. Okay, that's interesting, because that's, that's, in fact, what we do. So that's oh, okay, there we go. You, you're doing it. You don't need hey, the book. Do your homework first, and then show up. That's right. Yeah, we'd say everyone brings something to the table, right? We're not, you're not coming there empty-handed. So can you give us another example of something that like that that can, in 59 seconds can be a, a very effective, 
of technique? It, it, in terms of 59 seconds, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is there's so many in the book, there's about 300 of them. Um, if you say parenting is, is one of the things, that um, uh, praising children uh, for achievement is a terrible thing to do. To say, you know, well done, you got you know, straight A's or whatever. Praising them for effort, well done, you put a great deal of effort into that, is much, much better. And the reason being that if you, if you praise them for uh, achievement, next time they, they, they're kind of scared to put themselves out there because if they fail, they're not going to get the praise. Where they know if they're being praised for effort, they can always produce their effort regardless of, of what result oh. they get. There's a whole series of studies that went on for 10 years that showed that it's much, much better to praise for effort, not achievement. Um, and again, it's not widely known that, that, that that's the, the case. And, and, you know, you can explain that to people in less than a minute. It changes how they interact with their children. Hopefully their children will be better off for it. So it's, it's all those sort of mind tricks. Well, shit, I wish I knew that 10 years ago. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. You've got something to blame any failure in your life on. You see, that's, that's, that's how I look at it. <laughs> that's right. Ashley, you're an utter failure because I didn't have this 59-second lesson before <laughs> several years ago. That's interesting because of this reinforces you know other interviews that we have done and what we've always said is that the self-help industry is largely engaged in selling misinformation or just made-up crap to the public, largely telling them what they want to hear or packaging some you know some random ideas which may or may not be commonsensical or true in some kind of a, a package appealing packaging so it sounds like what you're doing is saying all right all that's nonsense we can put all that aside what what does the evidence actually say like some evidence-based self-help and that it's amazing how little of that is actually getting to the public. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, what, that's what's really sad. When I was looking through the journals initially, there's all this great stuff out there about what you should do, and the fact it is actually genuinely quite fast, and, and yet it isn't known, and it should be known. You know, people should know about how to praise kids. Um, so it's getting it beyond the ivory towers, getting it out of the journals. The book is very sciencey. It does go through the experiments, uh, the different designs, how you rule out um, correlation versus causation and so on. Um, so in that sense, it's not going to appeal, I suspect, to the sort of hardcore self-help market. It, it is um, a lot more sciencey. Um, but it's stuff that I think does need to go out there because the big problem is if you try and change using advice that doesn't work, you suddenly feel out of control of your life. You know, I tried my best. And heck, I just can't do it. And that feeling of not being in control is psychologically really damaging. So hopefully uh, we'll be sort of addressing some of those issues in the book. I think it's a great idea. I think that book will do well. Why did you subtract a second, though? Ah, there is a, there's a very interesting story about that. I say interesting. Uh, there's a vaguely interesting story, um, but I probably shouldn't share it with you straight off the top of my head. So uh, let me come back on the show at some point, if you'll have me, and uh, when the book's out in America, maybe. And I, I, will, I will reveal all. I mean, I don't know whether you guys are going to be able to sleep not knowing where that title comes from. I was figuring I'm just going to ask Rebecca, and she'll tell me, because she probably knows. Um, I think, yeah, she might do. She might do. I don't know. It, uh, it involves... A fire brigade and a house being burned down. There we go. That's all I'm that's, saying. About that's a it. good setup. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's how, good. How yeah. I am curious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, yes, it's it, it's nice and it's it's sold in different languages and 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 so on. So it'll go all over the world and things. And um, it's all part of this thing that I have wrapped up about. You know, skepticism is is often criticising stuff. And 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 I think science has got a lot of positive things to say to people, particularly psychology, in terms of getting it into their lives. 
and so part of my kind of passion is, is getting that stuff out of the journals and, and into the real world. Um, there's a, a, a great uh, video that the uh, Wall Street Journal have just done on the, the Twitter experiment. I've just seen it. Um, so if you want to sort of see some of the, the footage of how the experiment worked and so on, I think they followed a couple of skeptics um, taking part in it. So that's online at their, their site, um, which cool. is nice. Um, but other than that, it's it's been a pleasure. As as all, we don't do it often enough. We should we should do it more often. We don't. We, we were just saying we got to get you on more more often. I thought we were going to get to also talk to you at ten, but I guess we're not going to. Um, and for our UK listeners or any who can make it to the UK, you will be at Tam London. I, I believe I'm emceeing Tam London, so I, I should turn up. And uh, yes, yeah, so hopefully I, you will be there. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, did you say you guys are going to be there? We're, we're sadly not coming. Oh, Rebecca okay, will right. be there, but the rest of us won't, won't be able to make it. Okay, well, that's, yes, I'll be there. I'm seeing, introducing people and um, trying my best to, to keep it all moving along and things. So it looks like it's going to be a, a great event. I look forward to seeing everyone there. Well, thanks again for joining us, Richard. Always a pleasure. And thank you for having me. And Richard, in case you're wondering, that new element's got 112 protons. Oh, right. That's, that, that's, that's a weight <laughs> off my mind. Okay. Um, <laughs> really good. That's exciting, isn't it? A new element. It is. Uh, it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I so I tweeted this thing about kryptonite, which is apparently a really bad idea because there's a gas called krypton or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's a really bad idea. But um, yeah, it, it, so I don't know who's in charge of naming these things, but there must be somebody sitting there with a big book of things written down. And there's, uh, I'm sure, there's some committee somewhere. How cool would it be to be on that committee? See, that's what we should do instead of like America's Got Talent. It should just be a, <laughs> a you know, <laughs> kind of naming of the next element. That'd be fantastic. Public, right, public right. vote. <laughs> Yeah, but they, they don't. They don't even have a show once every eight or ten or twelve years, though. But well, you know, the other off year, you do name that planet, then you name that whatever. It's all sorts of things you can do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Name that star. Yeah. Right. Uh, good. Well, good night, Richard. Good night. Thank you. Bye. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I will come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to sniff out the fake. And you all can play along at home. This week, there is no theme. I know we've had two themes in a row. Good. I hate themes. I know. Just three random items. Okay, you all ready? Ready for the randomness. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Yep. Item number one. Astronomers conclude from simulations that there is a chance the Earth may collide with either Mars or Venus over the next billion years. Item number two, a new study shows that slide animation effects enhance attention and therefore learning of new material. And item number three, in a recent survey, less than half of the adults questioned could correctly identify the location of the heart and less than a third the location of the lungs, which is similar to results from 40 years ago. What? Wow, that, that last wow. one. That's depressing. <laughs> that, better be oh, the, that better be fiction. Rebecca, go first. So, Earth colliding with Mars or Venus over the next billion years. The only thing I'm not sure about here is the time frame, but that seems totally plausible. Slide animation effects enhance attention and therefore learning of new material. I'm suspicious of this because there's a chance that when you see movement or something on a slide, it could actually distract you and you'll be paying attention to the pretty pictures, but not the content. So um, that leaves the idea that in a recent survey, 
Less than half of adults can correctly identify the location of the heart and less than a third the location of the lungs. That is so depressing that it has to be true, unfortunately. Although, how do you how do you not know the location of your lungs? The heart, I can see, like a lot of people think it's way off to the left. But the uh, I'm going to say that the slide animation thing is, is BS. Okay. Bob? I'm going to agree with Rebecca. Everything she said uh, made sense. The, uh, the slide animation... Yeah, I think you're just looking at the 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 fancy effects and not necessarily you know the the text the uh, the real content, the anatomy uh, one. Those stats seem a little low, but they're I think I I still think they're pretty accurate. I'm trying to train myself not to be surprised by the results of polls that have to do with science, and the Earth getting hit by Mars and, and uh, Venus. Yeah, I could in a billion years there are I think there's subtle. Uh, little differences in uh, the orbits over the long term. Uh, I think the orbits can get kind of wacky, and I can see that stuff happening. So I'm going to say the uh, the animation one is uh, is fiction. Okay, Jay. Astronomers conclude from simulations that there is a chance that Earth may collide with either Mars or Venus over the next billion years. The orbits of the planets in our solar system are ridiculously stable, but when you throw in a variable like a billion years, absolutely, I think it's very very plausible that. Over that time, variation in the uh, in the orbits or whatever. Like I mean, even at that point, the the gravitational change from the sun because the sun will be burning part of its mass, and that could have an effect on a dramatic effect on the orbits. But um, sure, that one sounds very plausible. It's a good point. A new study shows that slide animation effects enhance attention and therefore learning of new material. Now, total anecdotal firsthand information I've sat through. Uh, I would say, without exaggeration, uh, several hundred slideshows. And everything about slide or PowerPoint presentations is dramatically boring. Uh, Nothing increases uh, the attention span of of the people watching. And absolutely, I disagree with that one. I think that one is the fake. Okay, Evan? Yeah, well, let's go for a clean sweep here and all all agree to agree. Um, Although it is interesting about that Earth colliding with mars and venus so i wonder is that going to be a decay of the i mean of the of, of earth's uh orbit is it mars it's interesting i'm going to be interested very interested to hear hear what you have to say on that steve i find that fascinating but yep it's the uh, slight animation effects that's the fiction okay well then we'll take them in order so we can um satisfy your curiosity evan the first one Astronomers conclude from simulations that there is a chance the Earth may collide with either Mars or Venus over the next billion years is science. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hooray for fiery death. I was a little surprised at this, actually. I mean, I thought the the orbits were a lot more stable. And this is pretty new information, actually. So a team led by Jacques Lescar shows that there are tiny perturbations in the uh, instabilities in the, in the orbits of the inner planets and that it's possible. He ran some computer simulations and over the next billion years there's a tiny chance that we could collide with one of our neighboring planets. Of course, that would be, that would be the end of pretty much all life on, on the Earth. There's also a chance that, say, Mercury may collide with Venus. And interestingly, if that happens the orbits of the other planets will become more stable. So that would Mm. reduce Mm. our risk or our chance of collision if Mercury and Venus collide. Whenever I hear stuff like this, like this is a perfect example of like, okay, 
planets may collide. You, you know, you're putting it in the distant future of humanity, and I'm always thinking, like, what are we going to do to prevent that from happening? Because, <laughs> you know, there's no chance that humanity is just going to let the Earth collide into another planet. Right. right? Like, we're going to try to do something, and a billion years from now? Oh, my God. Forget it. We'll have some good you tech know. by then. Yeah, right. Rebecca, did you see the animations with the planets actually hitting the Earth? No, very, I was very at cool. Well, what, you saw it too. Yeah, very <laughs> cool animations. You know, Evan and I didn't. I didn't. No, I didn't. Evan and I didn't see it, and we were smart enough to just logically figure out that that was definitely science. Or just go, go with, with the herd. Bob and I. All right, item number we'll two. Never, we'll never know, will we? A new study shows <laughs> that slide animation effects enhance attention and therefore learning of new material is fiction. Focus. And fiction, uh, of course. True. Oh, come on, Steve, really? I mean, what is there anyone that was like, wow, that, that PowerPoint was awesome? <laughs> I especially oh, love the animation. <laughs> I like it when the yes. stick figure did a split. In fact, what the research showed is that it uh, reduces learning. Of course. Be, and uh, <laughs> because, so this, and this did focus on using animation to like reveal points over time. Um, you know how you do that? Like you have the, each line slides in from the right or something. That when you do that, it does draw people's attention to the animation and off of the point for a moment. And also, they think that when you're looking at the slide, having the entire slide up for a longer period of time helps people absorb all the information. So when you reveal it in bits and pieces, the, uh-huh. the entire thing is there for less time, and that has a negative impact. So they found there was a significant negative impact on the amount of new information that people in the audience were able to learn from the slideshow with animation. So take it easy on the animation, I guess, is the lesson there. And at the same time, though, don't go packing a single slide with too much information. You can't well, yeah. read all that damn stuff. Yeah. I find that terribly annoying. That's slidesmanship 101. Evan, are, we, are we critiquing PowerPoint slides now? Because I can go on for hours. <laughs> I, mean, you're, I could go on with you, Jay. We'll have to create another podcast just to discuss that. And don't have your font in orange with a green background, please. And, you know, don't just read your PowerPoint to the audience at TAM. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Pictures are good and bullet points are good. Bullet points. That's what they're for. All right. Number three, in a recent survey, less than half of the adults questioned could correctly identify the location of the heart and less than a third the location of the lungs, which is similar to results from 40 years ago. And that's very depressing science. Yeah. Like the lungs. Where where are they pointing? Are they pointing at their belly button? No, to the boobs. Are they pointing at their knees? Well, what they did was they had... girl's got great lungs. They had had a body and then they had, um, you know, the anatomy was not being shown, but they just had like parts of the anatomy grayed out. Wait, and, and are we talking about a human body? Yeah, so it's like showing a human torso with gray areas and asking the point to which gray area would you find the heart and which, which area would you find the lungs. Oh, my God. And, it's even worse than we thought. Right. So, yeah, like there's two of them. So what here, are those? Here are the, oh, those are my here livers. Here are the results. So 85.9% of people could identify the location of the intestines. So most people knew where their guts were. Eighty point, But that still means you know 15% didn't know where their intestines were. 807 knew where the bladder was. 46.5% could correctly identify the heart, so that's less than half. And 
It says 68.7 misidentified the position of the lungs. So that means less than a third correctly identified the position of the lungs. Wow. And approximately half of the answers were correct. So half of the – and really just – where the, the where these anatomical structures, where these major organs were, were wrong. Here's a bunch yeah. of people who never played Operation in their life. <laughs> I would love to see video of people selecting the wrong area. Like, where did they point to? Where do they where do they think That's the heart and lungs I'm are? Yeah. yeah. I mean, recently, I was teaching this information to my daughter's kindergarten class. And so they got it right. They got, they kind of got it where they know you know not only where the organs were, but basically what they do. You know. That's kind of a kindergarten level of, of uh, biology, isn't it? What happens between kindergarten and adulthood that robs you of basic Hormones. Knowledge? The researchers thought that the numbers would be better than they were 40 years ago because of all the multimedia out there and TV and because you... Wait, are we talking about slides with animations? Yeah, because oh, of, uh, of the internet. So people, you know, the actually health information is the number one kind of information on the internet just surpassing porn a few years ago if you recall so they thought that no. and it's a fine people... line between the two actually wait 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 people are more concerned about their health than porn apparently if you, oh, you know, I think it's just a mix I, I just think it's a it's a poor classification system like not yeah. everybody who's searching for vaginas are interested in the anatomy you mean vajayjays yeah <laughs> Thank you. JJ. You but JJ, but no better than 40 years ago. So, <laughs> All right. So, you know, instead of making fun of these people, which I could do for hours, what's we happening didn't. or what's not happening? Like, how could people possibly not know these these things? Like, it's that's that's horrendous. The, f- the, the fault is in, you know, basic science, you know, high school level science education. Were they quizzed on ass versus elbow? Yeah, I don't know. That's uh, Evan, cheer us up with uh, with some awesome Who's That Noisy. Come on. And now, the moment we've all been waiting for, Who's That Noisy? Who's That Noisy? All right, so last week's, which was from two nights ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> We're tired. Oh, this were the days. Play last week's Who's That Noisy. Well, at about uh, 2.15, I took off from Chehalis, Washington... En route to Yakima, and of course, every time that any of us fly over the country near Mount Rainier, we spend an hour or two in search of the marine plane that's never been found that they believe is in the snow someplace southwest of that particular area. Evan, who was that noise from last week? Well, that was, in fact, Kenneth Arnold. We all the remember? guy from the Wonder Years? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, 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 no. The fellow to uh, whom the term flying saucer <laughs> is attributed and, of course, was part of that uh, crazy revolution that helped spark off the UFO movement in the, in the he 1940s. He didn't know what he was doing. He he was like a – wasn't he just a reporter that, that was describing well, he was his, a pilot. Was story behind it? He was the pilot. Actually, it was, it was a reporter who coined the term flying saucer based upon Kenneth Arnold saying that it skipped across – it seemed to skipped across – the sky like a saucer, but the reporter put the created the term flying saucer. Even though he, even though they weren't described as circular as a saucer is, they're right. more boomerang shaped. And that is exactly the time period with that accent. That it's like a 1950s accent. It was fascinating to listen to all these nice old recordings that come come by on the internet. So. And the first person to guess that, Kenneth Arnold, was Ben Birch from the board. So congratulations, Ben. All right, Evan, well, play us, play us this week's Who's That Noisy? All right. Take your seats, because here's this week's 
Who's that noisy? Okay, there you go. Fascinating. That's uh, that'll be a challenging one, I think. Okay, but uh, this audience likes a challenge. So. The sounds are always more challenging than the people. Yeah, I think so. But there's always good guesses. I'm, I always like like seeing what people come up. Sounds with. Sounds are less Googleable. Well, that's for certain. Yeah, yeah, Googleable. that's definitely true. Yeah, you can't Google. It's a nice word to say. Right. <laughs> Not yet, at least. Yeah, that's true. Oh, an audio Google. How day. interesting would that be? So you go to the website, you record your voice, Google looks up what you said or what noise you made, and it comes up with the hits. Yeah, that's next week. I bet they're working on it. <laughs> Jay, yeah. hit us up with a quote, baby. This is a quote from Stephen Jay Gould. And as many of you know, he was a prominent American paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, and historian of science. And I believe, Bob, you have an exceptionally strong love for this man. Yeah, I loved him. I've read all his books. Micah's brother. I like that two of his names are members of this panel, but go ahead. Yeah, that's true. Stephen Jay. And here's the quote. In science, fact can only mean confirmed to such a degree that it would be perverse to withhold provisional assent. I suppose that apples might start to rise tomorrow, but the possibility does not merit equal time in physics classrooms. Stephen J. Gould! <laughs> what a great point, though, <laughs> that Gould made. I think that's my favorite Stephen J. Gould quote. Yeah, yeah. It's a good one. It really is. It's does not one. merit equal time in the physics classroom. You hear that, Dean Radin? You hear that, Alex Securis? <laughs> Do you hear that, Sheldrake? All you people? <laughs> Word. Got it? Uh, that was sent in by by Mike Mahal from Dublin Island. Apparently, oh, excellent! Yeah. yeah, thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Well, do we have any announcements? Well, Boston Skeptics in the Pub is coming up by the time this is posted on Monday, June twenty ninth, two thousand nine. Particle Colliders: The Science and the Fiction with awesome rock star particle physicist Shalamet Moed. The seats, uh, the seats to the SGU dinner are dwindling fast. Please email us in to reserve a seat. Evan, explain to everyone how that works. Uh, we are going to be at TAM, and on July 10th, that Friday evening, we're going to be hosting a dinner for uh, our listeners and anyone else who wants to attend. Now, what you do is send us your reservation. Tell us your intention. Give us your names. If you're signing up for someone else, please include all of their names. And uh, you can send that to info at theskepticsguide.org. Once you receive your confirmation from us that your space has been held and reserved for you, you can then go ahead onto our SGU store on our website and uh, go to the general donations button and you can pay for your dinner there. With PayPal. For people who just can't or don't want to use PayPal, you can mail us a check. Just ask, and we'll send you our mailing address. Or you could also pay us at the event. Just let us know what you're going to do. Right, because there is limited. We are. This is a limited engagement, so we must have a headcount, and we will tell people when we've filled up. Right, and most importantly, it is going to be super awesome. So it is. In addition to the full cast of the Skeptics Guide, there might be some other people there worth rubbing elbows with. We should also mention that uh, we appreciate you donating. Anything you can to uh, the Australia Fund so we can 
fly out and uh, and uh, go to Australia to meet all the fans out there. And yeah, it's, a, uh, it's a long walk otherwise. So. And one final little announcement: uh, Jay has put a teaser to a video that we will be premiering at TAM onto the Skeptics Guide YouTube channel. So go to YouTube, look up Skeptics Guide. There's a few videos there, including this teaser that Jay just put up. Thanks for joining me again this week, guys. Surely. Thank you, Steve. Excellent Thank you. job. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The Skeptics Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Yeah.